Uh, I want you just to take just a moment and, and try to picture this scene uh, for just a second. Uh, I want you to think uh, you go with some friends, families, loved ones, people that you know the best in your life. Let's say maybe a hundred or so people that you know in your life and you all go together uh, to see a movie. You go into the movie theater and it's just you and your friends there. You know everybody in the room and the lights go down and the movie comes up. And it's not what you thought it was going to be, but instead of the movie you thought you were going to watch, what it is is you. You're on the screen, say like the last year of your life. Instead of the highlights of your life, it's, it's the lowlights of your life. It's all the bad moments. It's all the times when you lose your temper, when you get frustrated, when you're short with people. But it's not just things that you've done, it's also things that you've thought. And so now you see your thoughts and it's you saying them out loud and everyone in the room can see it. Let's say the movie's 15 minutes long. Just a few things, just enough. And I want you to think about that scene for just a second. Try to imagine what that would be like. There you are with all your friends and loved ones and the people that you care about and they see you at your worst. How do you feel? If you can really think about what that scene would be like for just a moment, how do you feel in that moment? think most of us would be like, I would want to get out of there as fast as I can. I'd want to crawl under the seat and want to run away. I wouldn't want to see any of these people anymore. And I think we all can relate at least to that in some way, that if everything that we've ever thought, the, the worst moments were all kind of laid bare, that's pretty scary. It's a pretty scary thought. And I think part of it is a scary thought because of what Scripture tells us, that our conscience bears witness that when there's things in our life that we know that we shouldn't do or we have handled poorly or we have not done the way or thoughts or whatever it may be, we know it because we're made in God's image and our conscience bears witness. Uh, if you struggle with that idea, that's, that's real clear in Scripture. Think of Romans chapter 1, Paul says, we are without excuse. Our conscience bears witness. We know things that we're supposed to do and the way we're supposed to do them because we're made in God's image. But if you struggle with that idea, a uh, great Christian philosopher, theologian, Francis Schaeffer, I actually looked it up this morning. Francis Schaeffer died about 40 years ago. Shows I'm getting old because I was like, oh, I think he died like 20 years ago. And then I looked it up and he's died 40 years ago. But Francis Schaeffer was this brilliant man. And he used to tell this illustration. If you struggle with that idea of our conscience bears witness or, or that we are, uh, uh, would be judged by our own standard. And what Francis Schaeffer said is just imagine this for a moment. You're born and as you're born and you come out, and you've been delivered and there you are in the hospital that they hang around your neck an invisible tape recorder. And you don't see it and you don't know it's there. And this tape recorder is there. And all it is there to do is every time that you make any sort of moral judgment towards anyone around you, it clicks on and it records your voice. And so whenever you say to someone, you shouldn't do that, or they ask for your advice and you say, no, no, this is the way to handle it. Or, or I say regularly to my children, when someone's ugly to you, you don't respond in the same way. You be kind. And the things that we say day to day. And what Schaefer said is, if you have a problem with that idea, your conscience bears witness that there's things that we innately know. He said, now imagine you stand before God and you say, well, I didn't know. I didn't have the Bible and I didn't know your law and I didn't know what it was like. And he says, God could reach and take the invisible tape recorder off your neck and play back to you your own voice and you will be condemned by your own voice. The own things that you have said to other people, none of us has measured up even to our own standard. And when you think about those, whether putting all your thoughts on the screen 
Or you think about hearing your own voice and what you've said to other people and how you've not measured up. It's a scary thing to think about. If you really stop and think about it, you go, whoa, I've not measured up. And we realize that. That's why we want to crawl under the seat when we think about that, that screen taking place and seeing ourselves on it. And so what I want to do this morning is just to think about how we deal with that. Why we have those feelings. Why we know that. If we really stop and think that we know that we have not measured up. Even by our own standard. And I want us to think about why that's the case. But I also want us to think about how God answers that. And we're actually going to look at this passage that Luke just read for us in Exodus chapter 12. And we're going to see how God's answer for this is this lamb. It may seem kind of uh, a little strange at first, but I want us to work our way through this passage and what it is God's teaching us. But as we do, I think it will help us to understand some of those feelings of inadequacy, of knowing where we failed. But it also presents to us what God's answer to that is. And then when we take all of this and we look at this story of the lamb that's presented in Exodus chapter 12 and we follow it through the Bible, it points us with great anticipation to the coming of Jesus and what he would do. And so that's what we're doing in this series for Advent. Last week, we looked at the promises that God gives to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 and then to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And he's saying, I'm going to bless the world through your seed and I'm going to fix the issues. I'm going to deal with sin through one that is coming through your seed. And then today we're going to look at this idea of the story of the lamb. Something we say a lot within the church, the lamb of God and Uh, The Lamb of God washes us, the blood of the Lamb. We say those kind of things all the time, but I want us to think about why we say that and what God was doing with the story of the Lamb in the Bible. And so we're going to look at Exodus 12. If you want to look there with me, that's where we're going to be this morning. And as we do, I want us to see what it says about our sin and our guilt and our conscience and those things that are there and how God answers it. And then lastly, how that points us to this expectation of Jesus. And so as we jump into Exodus 12, it's a little different for this series. Normally we work through books of the Bible. Right now we're kind of parachuting in in different spots. And so if you were here with us last week and we we ended talking about Abraham and this promise that God gives to Abraham. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you these descendants. And now we're fast forwarding almost 600 years. And Abraham's descendants have grown from this one man and his barren wife. He now has millions of descendants, these people of Israel. And they've gone down to Egypt where they've entered in and they've been put in enslaved by this great nation of the Egyptians. And what happens is God calls this man Moses in Exodus. And he says, I want you to go and you're going to lead my people and you're going to lead them out. And you're going to go to Pharaoh and you're going to say, let my people go. It's a very famous passage. Maybe you've seen the movies. You've read this several times, maybe as you've grown up in the church, if you've been around this. But this idea that God sends Moses to to set his people free. And if you read through this narrative in Exodus, there's there's something that's repeated over and over that you kind of see what God is after. God says to Moses, you're going to go before Pharaoh and this Egyptian uh, nation and you're going to proclaim to let my people go. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring these plagues. I'm going to bring these ten judgments on Israel and their false gods so that they see that I am the Lord. And it says that over and over. You actually see it in chapter 12 in verse 12. He says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast on and on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute my judgments. I am the Lord. And you see this over and over. 
And so when we start to talk about this idea of our deficiency and sin and guilt and the way we struggle with all these things, I want you to see these great big movements of what God is saying about who he is. And it informs us in this. And the first thing he's saying when you start to read here is that he is sovereign over all. That he alone is the Lord. And that's what he's doing in these movements when you read through an exodus. If you know anything about <clears throat> the Egyptians at this time, they worshipped all sorts of different things. They worshipped the sun. They worshipped the Nile River. They worshipped the livestock. They, they had all these different gods. And if you read through and you watch these movements of what God's doing, he's exposing all their false gods. And he's saying, I alone am God. I can make the sun go dark. I can make the Nile turn to blood. I can do all these things. And he's showing his way all the way through this leading up to this very last one that we read. This 10th plague that we that we call the, the Passover. In which God gives some very specific instructions. And as he's doing all this, he's teaching and he's showing that you come to God in the way that he defines in no other way. And so he's showing that these false gods of Egypt are just that. They're false gods. They're putting their faith and their hope in other things that can't do what they're hoping they would do. And so what God is doing along the way is he's showing that he is sovereign over all. But he's not only showing that he's sovereign over all, but that sin, and, and I say this a lot if you've been in our church, I say this frequently, sin is ignoring or rebelling against God and the world he created. And so he was showing them here, the Egyptians, he's showing Moses and the Israelites, he's showing Pharaoh, that you answer to me, that I am God and this is my world and I am the one that created it and sin is against God. We miss that a lot of times. We like to make it of, of, of sin as kind of a sliding scale and we'll decide what it is. But what God is saying is, no, I am the one that decides because I am the creator and sustainer of all things. And so when you read through this story, you start to see this happening. That God is kind of putting these false gods on trial and he's showing that they can't do what the people are hoping they can do. And he's showing that he alone is who we answer to. And so when he gives them this instructions for this last of the plagues, the, the Passover, he says, I'm going to come through on this one night. And if you don't follow my instructions, the firstborn in the house will be struck dead. And he gives them this, this kind of strange thing. If, as, as we're parachuting in to these passages, sometimes we read this with modern eyes and it's hard to get our head around what's happening. That you're going to take a lamb and you're going to keep it and you're going to do these things and you're going to rub the, do the blood on the door and you're going to hide inside and this is the way you will be spared. And that God's coming and he's going to show this. And so we struggle with some of the, the details here of what's happening. And it, and it can seem harsh. Oftentimes people will say, well, the God of the Old Testament seems really angry or really mean or, or some of these things that he's doing. What's, what's the deal with this? And maybe you feel that way when we read this passage and you start to look at it. And we kind of struggle with this idea that God's saying, you do it exactly like I say. And if you don't, the death of your firstborn will become, will be visited on your house. And you go, whoa, that's really harsh. It's very difficult for our modern understanding sometimes to get our head around. We operate in this way today that uh, our religious beliefs and what we think and the way we relate to God it is built purely on how we feel about it and the way that we operate as we go, uh, I'll kind of come to God the way I decide and it's on me. There's actually a whole category for it when they do uh, 
polls on what people believe today. Spiritual, but not religious. It's growing very fast in America today that people would say, I decide what I believe and how I believe it. And I'll come to that on my own. And I don't need anybody's help. I don't need the Bible and I don't need a church. and I don't need anybody else to tell me these things. I will decide this myself. And so we live in a culture that's very much that way. And so when we open the Bible and we read and where God is saying, you come to me this way and this is the way it works and this is the way it looks like we don't like that. A lot of the times we don't like that. At least our culture doesn't like that. And it's hard for us to hear that at different times. But what God is doing here is he's exposing the false gods that we can put our faith and trust in. And he's saying this isn't the way it works. It doesn't work that you come to God and you demand of him that you bend to what I want and you answer to me. It actually works the other way around. And I think we know that if we actually stop and think about it. I think this is actually very logical. If there is a God who is the creator and sustainer of all things, as scripture tells us. He spoke all things into existence by the word of his power. We exist because he says so. It's his world. Right? We are not our own. We belong to God. It makes sense that when he says this is the reality of how things are, we go, yes, okay. It is our sinfulness that flips that on its head and says, you answer to me. And so we struggle with stories like this when God comes in and he says, I'm going to do these works and I'm going to pronounce these judgments here and I'm going to show them that I am the Lord, that this is how it works. It's hard for our modern sensibilities. But part of the issue of what we're missing, I think, part of what we're missing in our culture is we are missing the holiness of God, that God is other, that he stands over us, that he alone is the one uh, who is the creator and sustainer. And what he says is the ultimate reality and not the other way around. And we struggle with that. And so we we operate with things in our culture like, well, I can decide for myself and I'm spiritual and I'll decide how I how I respond and what it looks like. And we miss the reality of who God is, the holiness of God. That is sinful people. Right where I started this morning, we all know that we have not measured up. We all know at different times we haven't even lived up to our own standard. And the idea that we as these people that are sinful and broken can come directly to God and tell him how it is, is not responding to God the way he's revealed himself. One of the clearest examples of this, Isaiah chapter six, God gives Isaiah this vision of the throne room of God and he's ushered into God's very presence. And what happens is Isaiah stands before God is he immediately falls on his face and he says, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Think about that idea of you're sitting there and you seeing your own stuff in your life up on a screen with everybody to see. And now you stand before God and every single bit of that is laid bare. And Isaiah falls on his face. And he says, I do not deserve to be in your presence. And he sees it so clearly. And so often we miss that part that God is perfectly holy. He is perfect in every way. And so what we get here in this story is that God in his perfection is bringing judgment at this time and in this way and in this place on these people that have said, we can define for ourselves. And God goes, 
No, you can't. I am the Lord and I will show you. And so he does. And that's what's happening as we read through this narrative in Egypt, that God's bringing it to bear and he's showing how clearly who he is and what it looks like. And so he moves through in these these ten plagues, but we get to the last one. I want us to focus on this, what we call the Passover. And he tells them, you take this lamb and you kill it in a certain way and you rub the blood on the door and you go through all these steps. And if you don't, the firstborn will be killed. And the objection comes, why is God so harsh? Why like that? Maybe you've thought about that before. Right? We say God is loving and he is merciful and he is kind and he is patient. And that is absolutely true. And those are all characteristics of who God is. And you can read this and you go, well, why would God make this so final? And it's a good question. Why would he do it like this? When you're reading through this narrative and you get to verse 23 and it says, the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and he will not allow the destroyer to enter the house, your houses to strike you. This idea of the destroyer. How does this work with the God of love and mercy and the things that we say about who God is? And we can come to that and go, I, I don't get this. This is hard to see, especially in our modern sensibilities. We look at it. But I think what you see is happening here is on one night in history in this way, God fast forwards and he shows what judgment looks like. He shows what it looks like to stand before a holy, perfect, righteous God in your sin. And what he says here is you can either do what I'm telling you to do and follow my instructions in this way or the destroyer's coming. It's a scary thing. But here's the thing I want us to make sure that we see and we at least think about this morning. We talk about God being love and he is. He is perfect love, but he is also perfect justice. And if God is not perfect justice, then he ceases to be God. And I want you to think about why. God is perfect in every way and in all things. He's perfect love. He's perfect patience. He's perfect mercy. He's all of these things, but he is also perfect justice. And we want a God that is perfect justice because we long for justice and we want things to be set right. And so sometimes the objection comes, why can't God just forgive? So what? They didn't put the blood on the door. Just forgive them. God can do that. He can do whatever he wants, right? That's the objection goes. Why not just do that? And the answer is God would cease to be God. God is perfect in every way. And if he is not just, then he is no longer perfect and he is no longer God. And so his perfect justice must be met. I want you to think about this for a second. We know this even as sinful people that we long for justice. Imagine for a moment, as hard as it is to even think about, that the loved one in your life, maybe your child, your spouse, whoever's most important in your life that you love dearly, is murdered. And it's a hard thing to even say. To have to go through something like that and see that in your life. Let's say that happens. And through time, uh, the police catch the person who did it. And it turns out the person who did it is just uh, a hardened, awful in every way, 
confesses to the crime, says, yes, I did it. And so they go to trial, they stand before the judge and they say, yes, I did it. I confess. I did kill this person. I did it. And you go through the trial and you're there watching it and you want justice for your family and you're gut wrenching going through these things and the sadness of of the brokenness of what has happened and the evil that you see. And you go through it and you get to the end of the trial and the judge says. He's guilty. And I find him guilty, but I'm a very gracious man, so I'm going to let you go. And you're standing there watching this unfold. And you go, that's not fair. That's not right. That is not justice. You can't just sweep that under the rug and say, it's fine. You're forgiven. It's okay. Go. We know that even in our sinfulness and our brokenness, that that is not justice. And God is holy and perfect in every way. And his justice is so far beyond anything that we can comprehend. And he holds that perfectly together with his love and his mercy. But he is just. And so you start to see this this story unfolding about what God is teaching them about who he is. He is sovereign over all. That sin is against him. That we answer to God and what he says, not what we say. He doesn't stand and answer to us. It's not that way. And he's showing them this. This is what's going to happen. And judgment is coming. And you deserve this judgment. And if you don't follow me, the firstborn will be killed. And you go, man, this is a rough story. But what God is doing is he's teaching them the reality of who he is and how we approach him. But the second part I want you to consider is this story of the lamb that's right in the middle. God says this judgment is coming, the destroyer for one moment, one night in time, judgment is coming. And he says, but I'm giving you instructions on how you hide yourself in my provision that you can escape this judgment. And so he gives them this story, the story of the lamb. You're going to take this lamb. If you look in verse three, it says, tell all the congregation of Israel on the 10th day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for the household. In verse five, your lamb shall be without blemish. One year old, a male, you'll take it from the sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it till the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill the lambs at twilight. And then they shall take some of the blood and they shall put it on the doorposts and on the lentils of the house in which they eat. And so you're going to take this lamb. If you know anything about a lamb, it's a defenseless, kind of cuddly, cute animal. You're going to find one that's spotless. And you're going to take it into your house and you're going to keep it for a couple of weeks and you're going to take care of it. And then after two weeks, you're going to take the animal and you're going to kill it. And you're going to take the blood and you're going to wipe it on your doorpost. Now, when we hear that and we read this, if you don't know background of the ancient world and sacrifices and blood and all these things, this is, sounds crazy. It's OK to say that when you read the Bible and you go, I don't get this. Why an animal like this and why take it like this and smear the blood? And so we need a little bit of background when we start to think about that when we're looking at it from a modern lens. But sacrifices in this day would be you take an animal and you lay your hands on it and you're confessing or you're saying that I know that I haven't measured up. The blood shows the life, right? Without blood in us, there is no life. 
And so you'd lay your hands on the animal and you were confessing or saying, I deserve to die because of what I've done, but this animal is taking my place. And then they would slit the throat and they would drain the blood and you'd watch it go out and they'd sprinkle the blood and you're making this sacrifice. I deserve to die, but this animal has been allowed to take my place. And they'd have some understanding of this as, as God's giving these instructions and what he's telling them to do. And so they would take this animal and they would do it in the way that he's told them. And I want you to think about what God's teaching here as he starts to introduce the story of the lamb that we follow all the way through the Bible. That God alone provides provision for us to escape judgment that we deserve. And even though it's kind of foggy at the moment, and even though, and I want you to think about it. These people take the lamb and they do the things that God tells them and they take this kind of cute, uh, defenseless animal and they keep it and they go through all this stuff and then they rub its door, uh, blood on the doorpost. It's almost comical. This is the thing that is going to keep us safe. This is the thing that God says, you do not go outside. Right? He, he says that very clearly. You're going to rub the door on the doorpost. The destroyer is going to come and you do not come outside. You hide yourself in this place and you don't come out of the door and you hide yourself under the provision that I've given you. And that is the only way that you make it through this. And so he tells them, you do this. You follow the instructions that I give you. And if you know the rest of the story, the Israelites do this and the destroyer comes and the firstborn of many of the Egyptians houses are killed. And there's a great wailing and they see this. But those that put the blood of the lamb on their door and hide themselves inside are spared. And then God frees them and they leave and they go and the rest of Exodus will, can read that. And God saves them from it. But then he tells them right in the midst of this, you're going to keep this as a memorial year after year. You're going to remember this and what I've done. That you deserve this judgment, that it came on this day and that you were spared. And the reason you were spared was because of this lamb and the way that I did it for you. And you rubbed the blood on the door and you followed my instructions. And so every year you're going to gather together and you're going to retell this story and you're going to say it over and over and over and over again. And so you read through the whole of the Old Testament. And there it is, the Passover. And they're keeping the Passover and they're talking about this and they're doing it. And you see the story of the lamb kind of following its way through the whole of the Old Testament. And it's this kind of shadowy thing. But what God was teaching them was clear. You trust in my provision and what I do and what I tell you. And you put your faith in what I say. And that is the way that you're saved. And so they do that. And they do it. And they do it. 1,300 years worth of doing it. And then we get to a man named John. He's out by Bethany, by the Jordan River, and he's preaching. The gospel is coming. The kingdom is coming. God himself is coming. Repent. The kingdom is at hand. And he's out there baptizing people. You're not saved by who you are or being an Israelite or any of those things, but the king is coming. And as he stands out there, and then one day this Jewish man from Nazareth comes walking up and he turns around and he points and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God inspired John the Baptist to say that. 
to point at Jesus and say, there he is, the Lamb of God. And I really believe that at that moment, John didn't fully understand what he was saying. Later on, he'll struggle with what Jesus is doing and what it looks like, and he'll, he'll wrestle with it and he'll not fully understand. But I think he understood that this is the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. But he didn't understand exactly what that meant. But he says it, and it's there, and now Jesus is here. But it's really not until the night before Jesus would die this starts to come into picture, clear picture, and really not until after Jesus' death and resurrection when he pulls it all together and he shows the disciples. But I want you to think about what happens on the night before Jesus dies. Matthew chapter 26 says Jesus sits down to eat the Passover meal with his disciples and he gathers them together and they set up this meal and there they are together and they're going to take and eat this meal. And so for 1300 years they would gather together And they would remember how God saved them from the Egyptians. And this is what he did. And they would retell the story and they would go through it. And they'd take the bread and they'd say, this is the bread of our affliction from our wandering in the desert. And it reminds us of how God saved us and kept us in those things. And all these pieces were so full of symbolic meaning. And they sit down with these men who've who've gone through this many times before in their childhood and as they've been growing, growing up. And then Jesus sits and he takes this meal with his disciples. And in Matthew chapter 26, it says, Jesus took the bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them and saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. And they would have all gone Wait, that's not how this goes. What do you mean it's your, your, your body and your blood? And what Jesus does in that moment is he says, I'm the lamb. They would have taken the Passover meal. And I, I'm quite certain. I've heard people say, well, they didn't have the lamb. And I'm sure they ate the lamb. He told them to prepare the meal. It was there. But the Gospels never mention the lamb. And they never mention anything about Jesus talking about the lamb. And I think the reality is because the lamb's sitting at the table with them. And he says, this is my body and this is my blood given for you. And all of a sudden it starts to come into focus. And they didn't see it yet. I think they were all kind of like, okay. But then the next day when Jesus goes and willfully lays his life down. And he becomes the perfect spotless sacrifice for you and for me and for all those that would put their faith in him. And his blood is shed, his perfect life. He dies the death that we deserve. He lived this life perfectly so that we can be covered by his blood, that we can now stand before God. I want you to think about what God was doing for all of this time. Way back in Egypt, inspiring this and putting this into play and all these things was always pointing forward to what Jesus would come and do and finish. And so there he is sitting with them and he says, this is my body and this is my blood and it's given for you for the forgiveness of sins because Jesus is the perfect spotless lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He does for us what we could never do for ourselves. And the glory of that and our anticipation, I want you to think about that story because it points us to what it looked like, the anticipation that when Jesus finally gets here at Christmas and he's born and they go, ah, He's here. 
The one that we've been talking about, the one that we've been waiting on. And now he's here. And so as we prepare our hearts in the Advent season with the expectation of Jesus coming and what he's done. These symbols, these signposts, the way that God was moving helps us to see that. But I want to end here this morning. You know, the lamb shows up one more time in the Bible. It's actually in Revelation. It says the lamb is sitting on the throne. And the heavens are rejoicing at what the Lamb has done. And there He is on His throne. He's finished this work and He's ruling and reigning. And I love that image of of Jesus, the conquering Lamb, that has finished the work. And the story of the Lamb is not complete until we see that He's ruling and reigning on His throne and He's coming again. And so when we say we look at these stories... And we look at how they're moving towards Jesus, that it helps with our anticipation to celebrate at Christmas. But I hope and I pray that it helps us in our anticipation of his coming again. That he is coming to reclaim his own. Those that he has bought with his blood. That we will be able to stand before God in glory. Certainly not by our works and we know it. Oh, I do not want to stand before God in me. But washed in the blood of the Lamb, I can stand before Him because of what Jesus has done. My awareness of my own sin and guilt and shame, I can stand not because of me, but because of what Jesus has done. It's the glory of the picture of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the glory of what you've done for us. We thank you for the way that you have for thousands of years prepared your plan. Before the foundation of the world, you made these promises and these images and these pictures and the way that you were teaching and showing us that it's just a testimony to your glorious grace. We thank you that you've done for us what we could never do for ourselves. We thank you that we get to celebrate in the season of your coming, but it also reminds us of your coming again. And so we thank you for these glorious truths and we pray all of them in Jesus name. Amen.